All right. Good morning. Uh, glad to see everybody here again. Uh, we hope that you had a great Christmas, a uh, great New Year, uh, and that you're ready to begin another year uh, practicing the Shema, which is the Old Testament for loving the Lord, uh, your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and might. Um, and loving your neighbor as you love yourself. Um, and we're confident that you guys being here, that's exactly what you want to do. Even if it's me preaching and not Rob. I know that you guys really love the Lord, right? If you're going to sit through it. So uh, bear with us here, all right? Um, so we've entered into 2021. And even though we've left 2020, we know that you're not leaving all the problems the past couple of days, right? They're still here with you. They don't just stop no matter how much we'd like them to. Uh, they continue to have a lasting effect on our lives, on our relationship with God, and on our relationships with other people in the world, uh, both believers and people who don't believe, right? And these are problems that we're forced to respond to because they're all pressing matters, whether it's COVID or personal preferences, um, anything political, right? They're pressing matters in the world, right? So we have to respond to them. And one of the biggest problems that I feel like I've seen for a long time, what has become increasingly more pressing in the past few months, is the way that Christians speak. And we've titled this message, Speaking in Light of Christ. Um, And what I mean by that is that it's speaking in a way that shows everyone around us the mercy, the love, and the grace, and the understanding that Jesus shows us. Um, and that applies both to believers and to people who don't believe, right? So that's what I, that's what I want to talk about this morning. And uh, we're going to camp out in James 3 for about the first half of the sermon. Then we're going to move to uh, a couple other scriptures. Um, but I would really encourage you to write them down uh, so that you can check them later. Um, always encourage you guys to read it for yourself. So, if you want to turn to James 3, while you're turning there, I just want to give you some background about the book of James. Very interesting book. Um, It's Jesus' half-brother, right? Um, And James is writing this letter to Jewish Christians, uh, some of which are in house churches in and around the area of Palestine. And these people have experienced persecution, Uh, and the very real general struggle that comes with living around other sinful human beings. Uh, They're having problems with one another, uh, and they're really, really struggling, right? They're having problems with their faith. Um, He mentions prayer at the end. Like, he hits a ton of topics. Um, It's very similar in a lot of ways to the book of Proverbs. There's 108 verses in this book, and about 50 of them are commands, different commands to do something, right? So about half of them. And while it's filled with all these different commands, in chapters 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, there's some really important words, uh, some really important verses that stand out that I think have a great effect um, on us and really have something important to say as they reveal the true nature of our hearts. So uh, in verses 1 to 2, it says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole 
body. So the first thing we see here is that he gives teachers this warning. But it's not just to teachers, and we know that, uh, as the next verse points out, that all people stumble in many ways, right? That if anyone does not stumble, he's a perfect man. Now the word here for perfect is teleos, and what it's talking about is a completeness and a spiritual maturity. This is a maturity that is not possible on our own. This is a maturity that's only possible with Jesus, walking hand in hand with him, seeking him, pursuing him. And with what we're talking about today, the only way that you're ever going to be able to speak in a way that demonstrates the gospel to people, right, the radical love and grace of Jesus, is if you're doing it in the power of Jesus, right? So that's really important. So hang on to that. Don't forget it, um, because they don't have it, and we're about to find out why, all right? So it's a maturity that's impossible for us to attain apart from Jesus, and the author's intent is to show us how difficult it is to control the things that we say. Because if we're capable of controlling the things that we say, then we're capable of, if we're capable of doing that, then we would also be capable of controlling ourselves and preventing ourselves from sinning in every other aspect of our lives. That's the comparison he's making, is that that is how difficult it is to control what you say, to not sin in your speech. Like I said, we know that we're not, we are not capable of doing that apart from Christ. So James's purpose for saying this is to point out how difficult and challenging this is for us. So as we move into verses 3 through 5, we see another truth that's very interesting. It says this, If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So, these verses aren't saying that our tongues control our bodies, right? That's not what they're saying. However, these, vo- these verses are pointing out two very important things that we have to keep in mind if we're going to speak in a way that show others the gospel and our language, right? The first is that our words are extremely powerful. That's what he's pointing out. For those of you who have been around horses, you're familiar with horses, you know that when you put the bit in their mouth, all it takes is a little tug at the reins for them to change direction, right? That's all it takes. And for a ship, you have this very, very small rudder. And at the slightest turn, it changes the course of the ship. He's talking about this to show how important and powerful the tongue is. And we see this in the following verses, in verses 5 through 9, where it says, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining, or defiling, the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed, It has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So he's saying, your tongue, your words, they carry weight. They have the ability to do great good. And he's pointing out that they have the ability to do great bad. They have the ability to cause division pain and suffering to those around us. That's why it says, they boast of great things. They're full of pride. It's a great forest that's set ablaze by such a small fire. 
He's talking about the negative impacts that our words can have. How our words, if we're not careful, can cause so much damage both to believers and people who don't believe in Jesus. And it's incredibly important to understand how powerful those words are, how badly you can hurt believers, non-believers, how you can cause division and disunity in the body of believers, and how you can even show people, non-believers, false truths about God, make them have an incorrect view of the Lord. And the second thing that verses 3 through 4 show us is that our tongues are very accurate indicators of where our hearts are. And in these verses, James uses this language to point out not only the great power that our words have, but also to point out the things that we say often show what we're believing, what we're pursuing the most with our lives, and what we desire more than anything else. So how do we know this? We know this because when we look at verses 3 and 4, it says, oops, gotta go back here. When we look at verses 3 and 4, it says, if we put bits into the mouths of horses. He's talking about the rider, the person who puts the bit into the mouth of the horse. We guide their whole bodies. And when he says, look at the ships, though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. It's not that your tongue makes you sin. It's not that you just mess up. It's that you have desires in your heart that aren't right. And it's those desires in your heart that cause you to say things that are not of the Lord. That's the problem. That's what he's pointing out. It's not just about the tongue and, oh, it's, it's just my tongue and it's just my sinful nature. Like, yeah, we can sin. We also have the power of the Holy Spirit, which gives us strength to say no to sin. So this is what he's pointing out. And we see Jesus echo these same words in Luke 6.45 when he says, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So Jesus simply points out that the things that we say are indicators of what truly lies inside our hearts. What we say demonstrates what we truly think, what we truly believe about situations we're facing, about the people that we're talking to, and even about the events that happen around us and to us at any given moment. And if we aren't careful, we'll end up living and speaking to people in ways that don't show people the gospel because our words won't be loving, uplifting, or kind. And when we do that, we not only fail to live out God's commission to share the gospel and make disciples, but we fail to show people who God is, and instead we give them an inaccurate view of God by not showing them the great love that God has for them. So we end up missing out on the opportunity to let them experience the greatest love that they could ever know and the Savior that came to die on the cross for them that speaks great, beautiful words over them that calls them precious and beloved um, and blessed and cared for. And we allow them to miss out on the opportunity to realize that they could be a part of his family. And when we do that, we end up being exactly what James warns us about in verses 9 through 12. And here he gives us three illustrations of things from nature that should never mix. And what he's doing is he's comparing the believers to those things. And this is what it says, With it, with our tongues, we bless our Lord and Father 
and we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing my brothers. These things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So like I said, he gives us three illustrations. And in the same way that salt and fresh water aren't meant to pour from the same stream, we're not talking about burnout, we're not talking about brackish, right? It doesn't apply here. All right. So in the same way those aren't meant to, meant to mix, right? In the same way that two different fruits can't come from the same tree, we're not meant to live lives that in one minute proclaim God's glory, his majesty, his power, to worship him, and then in the next to turn around and say something wicked or hurtful or unloving to another person, right? And this is easy today for us to fall into, right? Because we can come to church on Sunday, we can clean ourselves up, we can act nice in front of everyone, and as soon as we leave, we can speak horribly to someone, right? We can get on social media and get in an argument with someone, right? Speak in a way that's not glorifying to God. Really for no purpose, right? And what he says is we end up cursing those who are made in God's image. And this is a big deal because the fact that we're made in God's image should really hit us in the heart. Like he created us to be relational beings the same way that he is relational. He created us to be with him and to be in community with one another and to love one another and to lift one another up, to call and spur one another onto a deeper relationship with him and to do his work together. All of it was together, right? So when we say these things, we're damaging the relationship that God has called us to have together as a community of believers. That's what he's getting at here. So how have we been called to speak to others and how can we begin doing it as we start another year? Because James' letter, this, this language in chapter 3, it's very... It's very negative. It's all bad, right? It tells you a lot of what not to do. So I want to give you some of what we should be doing. I think two scriptures immediately come to mind, uh, at least for me. And the first is Colossians 3.17. It says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the, norm, in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Right? And the next one is Ephesians 4.29, which says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth but only such as is good for lifting up so that those who hear it can receive grace, right? So that it, will, it may give grace to those who hear. Here's what's important. It's that the Greek word used for corrupting talk here in Ephesians 4.29, sapros, it also refers to rotten fruit, something that is disgusting, something that you should want no part of, Right? And Paul makes this comparison to show us how disgusted we should be by sin, right? Especially sin against one another. Because in this passage, Ephesians 4, he's talking about the unity of the body. He talks about how God gave the apostles, the prophets, the teachers, the shepherds, all of it for the sake of building up the body to look like him who is the head, Jesus Christ. It's a great passage. And here... He makes the specific point that in every occasion, as it fits the occasion, we might give grace to those who hear. So in every situation, 
Our desire should be to help others experience the grace of God. So we need to look at what prevents and keeps us from doing that. Because I can tell you that, and you can be like, wow, I'm supposed to be loving and gracious to everyone that I speak to, and it's going to be super difficult to do, right? You're going to struggle with it. I can tell you because I struggle with it. Everyone struggles with it. So what prevents us or keeps us from doing that? And the first thing is the same thing that everyone struggled with from the Old Testament to the New Testament to today, right? It's that we get caught up in the ways, the practices, and the preferences of the world. We fall into the same way of speaking as the world because it's easily accessible. It's been modeled for us our entire lives, right? The Christian way to speak, the gospel-centered way to speak, is in this book that nobody picks up, right? It's in Jesus' life that we don't look at. But everything around you models hate, hostility, a selfishness, a desire to be right, pridefulness, right? Yeah. That's what we see. It's affirmation, right? It's affirmation. So, as we look at that, the question we need to ask ourselves is do our personal preferences, our opinions, our political views, our desire to be right, or our pride, and our selfishness dictate the way that we speak to people, and not just the way that we speak to people, but what we talk to them about, right? Are those the things that dictate the way we speak and what we talk to people about, or is it Jesus that influences us? Is it Jesus that influences our conversations and the words that we use in those conversations? So I talked about this the last time I preached, I believe. And I find it very relevant to this message. And it's the fact that we talk about what we love and we tend to love most whatever it is that we talk about, right? Talk about what you love and you love what you talk about. Make sense? And this applies to everything in our lives, I believe. So when we love being right, We will seek to be right in every situation and we'll seek out conversations that we know we can have the upper hand in, right? We will steer clear of every topic that we are not an expert on, right? And we will turn every situation, every conversation into a conversation that we are an expert in so that we can be right. And when we can't be right, we'll give up on the conversation or become hostile, And when we cling to a political candidate, if that's what we love, that's what we're passionate about, it's politics more than anything else, or a certain political belief, we'll waste all of our time and effort talking about that candidate or that law or that decision and trying to prove to others how our opinion is superior to theirs. And in the end, we'll find out that we just wasted all of our time advocating for a man or woman or a policy or an idea when there was a wonderful creator who created and designed you and loved you so much that he sent Jesus to die on the cross for you and cares about you more than the politician or the idea or the law, serves you far better and loves you much more than that politician or candidate ever could, right? And just to give you an example of, of what this looks like. So I was, I was talking to a man the other day. 
and he was so discouraged that Trump lost that he said that he was either done following politics or he was just going to follow Russian politics. I don't know why, but Russian politics. And I started thinking about that. And that's not what Jesus wants. Jesus wants us to speak about everything in light of who he is and what he's accomplished for us in the gospel. And I want you to hear me super clearly on this part. That doesn't mean that you give up the things that you're passionate about. But it also means that Jesus is going to change the things that you're passionate about. And the way that you talk about certain things is going to change. So if you really love something and it's above Jesus and you decide, you know what, it's time to put Jesus first, then Jesus is going to change what you talk about and the way that you talk about it because that's what he does because he's great. He changes our hearts and shows us the better way. That's who Jesus is. He's the better way. So it doesn't mean that we quit talking about the things that we love, but it does mean that we should love Jesus more and be open to letting him change our views so that they align more with his will for our lives and with his word. And that's not going to happen if you're not in the word, by the way, and you're not surrounding yourself with other believers who are in the word. Because no one's going to call you out on it. So, it just means that you love Jesus more and you begin to view things in a way that proclaims Christ as Lord instead of whatever it is that you're worshiping. The second thing um, that I think we can do here is that as believers, we have what some people would call ultimate truth. And what that means is that we have divine truth from the Lord that we know and believe to be 100% accurate, right? And we can take that truth and we can use it in a way that isn't glorifying to God, right? We can get on social media or we can get in conversations with people and we can figuratively beat them over the head, right? David Crowder has a song, I can't remember the title of it, but he says, I held the Bible like a hammer and I tried to nail down everyone. Like that's what he tried to do. He's beating at the will, as Keller would say. He says, don't beat at the will. Uh, what that means is that I can, me and Rob, or, or any preacher, we can get up here and we can tell you like what you should do and what you shouldn't do. And you could be out of here in like 10 minutes probably. And you don't leave changed at all. Because all we've done is tell you hey, you're bad for doing this, or hey, great, you did this this week, right? That doesn't help you at all because it doesn't change your heart. And that's what happens when we say, I have truth, I read my Bible, and let me go out and take it to the world, right? When you do that, you forfeit the grace and the love and the mercy and the understanding of the gospel. You lose those things when you go out and you seek to put your finger on truth and hold it in someone's face. That's what happens. So, when we think we're so right, we speak hastily, bluntly, and with little grace. And the heart result is the same for both the first person that we just talked about, the person who thinks they're right, and holds these selfish desires and opinions, and for this person. The heart is the same. Because it, Either way you go, the people really aren't that different. They think they're right, and they're both lacking grace, right? So, just to give you an example of what this looks like for my life. When I became a believer, I was super legalistic. 
Um, for those of you who don't know what that is, it basically just means that I, I read the New Testament, uh, I tried to memorize as much scripture as I could, and I tried to follow it exactly, and I tried to earn my salvation. And that's not how it works. We know that salvation is by grace through faith, which means that you trust in God, that it was Jesus who died on the cross for your sins. Well, I didn't believe that. Um, I thought I believed that, but I didn't really believe it in my heart. And what that turned into was a young college kid, senior in high school, young college kid, who told everyone what they were doing wrong and why they were doing it wrong. I could give you the scripture like that. I could quote you the scripture, right? And I remember I met this guy um, from like Tennessee, I believe. And he came and he was kind of a Christian, had grown up in church, and was like, wow, you're, you're such a good Christian, and asked me to help him. And I just remember giving him Moral lesson after moral lesson. This is why you shouldn't do this. This is why it's wrong. This is what God wants for you. Without ever giving him grace. Without ever telling him, look, this is how much Jesus loves you and this is why his way is better for you, right? Never did that. There was no grace. And I wish that I could go back because I didn't help him at all. He tried to follow those things, but he couldn't because he wasn't living in freedom, right? That's why Paul... In Romans chapter 7, chapter 8, talks about like, man, I, I really want to do right, but I just can't because of my flesh. And then chapter 8, he comes back and he's like, oh, but with the power of the Spirit and with the grace of the Lord, when I'm living in grace, it's grace that sets me free. It's grace that actually empowers me to live a life that's free. So, although my intentions were good and our intentions can be good, when we take truth to people, even when they're rooted in a desire for people to know the Lord and experience the sweet love and understanding and personal relationship of Jesus, we can fail to do that because we're too quick to speak and we're too forceful. And I think that we've done this with a lot of people over the years. Um, based on political opinions, um, candidates we support, personal preferences, selfish desires, um, and even matters like abortion, right? And in doing this, what we've done is we've successfully alienated people from God. And they see Christians as judgmental people who don't care about them, who care about forcing them to live the same way that we do. And those people don't care about living the way that we do because they don't believe in the Lord, so we can say abortion is wrong or you shouldn't vote for this person because of this or because of this sin um, or you shouldn't do that for this reason, right? But that doesn't change their heart because they don't care. They don't have the personal relationship that you have with Jesus. They don't understand what it's like for your heart to be broken the way that David's heart was broken when he realized that he sinned against the Lord. They don't have that relationship. They're not worried about that. <clears throat> What they need to experience as someone who's willing to listen to them, to ask them questions, to get to know them, and to love them the way that Jesus did with us. So it doesn't matter if our intentions are good, if our words aren't received in a way that the people that we're speaking to can receive and fully understand God's love and grace for them. And what's incredible about the book of James is that 
it's filled with application like this for the Christian life. I think there's a reason why James uh, 1, 19 through 20 says, Knowing this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. In these verses, James highlights three important things that we as believers need to be able to do if we're going to speak in a way that shows others grace, no matter what the situation is, right? First is be quick to listen. Why? Because in order to understand the heart of someone, you need to be willing to listen. Be slow to speak. Why? Because you need to listen, right? It's not just because you need to listen. It's also because you need to seek the will of the Lord. You need to ask the Lord for guidance. You need to ask the Holy Spirit to give you the words to say. You need to seek wisdom in that moment, not shoot back with an answer, right? And everyone thinks that they can respond lovingly until they're confronted with a difficult child who backtalks, right? Or who misbehaves, or until someone blatantly tells you that you're wrong, makes you feel small in front of people that you respect and care about, right? It damages your pride and your ego. And yet, God has still called us to be slow to speak and quick to listen and slow to anger, even in those situations. That's what he's called us to. So what does this look like, right? Because that's crazy. That's radical. That's different. That's not what the world says. Someone offends you. Someone does something wrong to you. You fire back. You don't seek to understand what's going on in their heart, right? That's, that's crazy talk, right? That's what Jesus did. And a great example um, from a person named Jackie Hill Perry um, is that she writes, uh, I can't remember what book it's in, but she writes this example of her daughter who's not a believer, who blatantly de- denies Jesus. And she's misbehaving and she's being rude and she throws her juice on the floor. And Jackie stops and she thinks, she prays. And after taking a minute, she asks her child, what's wrong? Uh, What's going on? Why she's behaving that way? And she says the reason that she does this is because the way that she responds now, in this specific situation, models the gospel for her child. She can respond by tearing into her, right? Or she can respond by seeking to understand, giving some discipline, but also giving grace and love. She says, and this is how we can model the gospel for our children, right? And that's a practical example of what it means to be quick to listen, be slow to speak, be slow to anger. In the middle of what we would call as a butt-whooping scenario, right? So, she points that out and lays out what it's like to speak in light of the gospel in that situation, right? To her daughter who's not a Christian, um, and it's an opportunity to show her daughter the love and grace of Jesus, even though she's just sinned against her and God. Now, this doesn't mean that you don't discipline your child, right? It's just a different way to look at that and to realize, look, we're supposed to speak in light of who Jesus has made us to be, in light of what he's done for us, right? The last thing is be slow to anger, I think that this is, might be the most simple one uh, because as a Christian, you're still a human being who has bad days. 
and you live around other people, other believers, and your family, in close contact, and these people are going to rub you the wrong way because we're all sinful human beings, right? And while we're seeking to become more and more like Jesus, we're still going to get on one another's nerves, right? Because there are broken areas of our lives. We're not believing the gospel in every area of our life. Sometimes we don't respond in a way that's loving. Sometimes we don't handle a situation the right way and we drive someone else crazy. And that's okay. But in the middle of that, we need to respond in a way that shows people the love and grace of Jesus. So, that means being patient, practicing forgiveness and love. And the same is true when we deal with those who do not believe in Jesus as their Lord. And if anything, it's going to be a little bit more difficult because we're going to walk into that with an expectation. The same expectation that we have of believers. You're supposed to behave this way. But that's not going to be wise for us. It's going to be much more difficult. And we need to be ready to show them forgiveness and love and grace and seek to understand what's going on in the middle of that. So the last passage of scripture that I want to look at this morning uh, is John 4, uh, verses 1 through 29. And the reason that I want to look at this scripture is because I believe that in order for us to really get any of this, for you to really get anything out of any sermon, especially that I preach, is to look at Jesus and to see how he's done it for us, how he's made it possible, and how the same things that He's calling us to do. He's already done for us, right? And that's how it becomes real to your heart. It's not possible unless you understand what Jesus has done for you. So, when we look at this passage about the woman of Samaria and Jesus who comes to her, right? We see a couple of incredible things. The first... uh, In verse 6, it says, Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So a couple important things you need to understand. Jesus is walking through Samaria, and Jesus is a Jew. The Jews hated the people of Samaria. As a matter of fact, the Jews walked all the way around Samaria and crossed the Jordan River to prevent themselves from being defiled, right? That's what they did. And Jesus walks right in there. That's the first thing you need to understand. The second thing is that it's the sixth hour of the day. Now, during this time period, the Roman day started at six. So it's high noon, basically. Um, Or about high noon, which is one of the hottest parts of the day. And this woman is out there getting water. Now, most women would go in the morning, or in the evening, not at the hottest part of the day. The reason that she's there is because no one wants to be around her. And if she's around them, they speak bad of her. They talk down to her. They look down at her. There's guilt and shame for her. And we know that this is because later on Jesus tells her, where's your husband? Ask her, where's your husband? He says, I don't have a husband. He says, that's right, you've had five. It's not that she's actually been married that many times. It's that she's been with that many different people. 
He's saying like you've made commitments that you aren't supposed to make. And the first thing that we see in verse 6 is that Jesus goes straight there to talk to her. In verses 7 through 10, I want to read them to you real quick. It says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. So, Jesus speaks to this woman. It's completely against the culture. It's radical for their time period, right? In the same way that if you walk in to any place, some person comes in who is ragged, looks like they're probably on something and you go and approach them and talk to them and seek to understand what's going on in their life it's that type of situation no one's talking to this woman no one wants to be around her there's guilt and shame associated with her and no one's there for her. and Jesus comes and speaks to her and doesn't just speak to her but listens to her heart and Jesus already knows everything about this woman and still he has this conversation with her he goes back and forth with her And while he knows everything about her, he's listening. And not only is he listening, but in verses 16, um, sorry, verses 11 through 15, he tells her about the only thing that will ever satisfy her. And it's him. That's what he tells her. In verse 16 through 27, says, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right. And saying, I have no husband, for you have had five, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. She says she perceives that he is a prophet. Now, I'm going to encourage you to maybe not call out people's sin that quickly. But Jesus knows already everything that's going on in her life. And what's beautiful about this picture here is that while Jesus knows what's going on in her life, he points her to himself and speaks to her in a loving and gracious way. Even though he points out her sin, he still speaks to her in a loving and gracious way and is seeking not just to correct her behavior, but to love her and get to know her and build a deep personal relationship with her. That's what Jesus has done for us. Jesus has come and loved us when we were enemies of his. Jesus has come and cared for us and literally walked the earth in our shoes. He knows what it's like to struggle. He knows what it's like to be faced with temptation. He resisted it all. He did that so that he could understand you. That was 30 years of understanding for us. 
I can't say that I've tried to understand anyone for even a third of that time, right? It's not true. Me and Carly have been together for like four years. I probably barely understand anything about her. Jesus understands everything about me, right? Some of you have been married for that long, maybe longer. You probably don't understand your spouse as well as Jesus understands you. That's the truth. But if we're going to speak in a way that's loving and gracious and that points people to God, that shows them the great love and grace that he has for them, we have to really ask some solid questions and listen and be slow to speak and be slow to anger when they give some answers that we really don't like. Right? Let's pray.